You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to Episode 6 of the Crisis in the Church series. We're speaking with Father Stephen Reuter again for the culmination of our study of liberalism by seeing how it's completely impossible for a Catholic to be liberal and vice versa. Yes, there are liberals who are Catholic, but can they truly say they're Catholic? We'll look at the key distinctions between these opposing philosophies. We'll also dive into some church history and find out how liberalism made its way into the Catholic Church. The Church was first weakened by several key events in history. Even then, it stood up against liberalism for hundreds of years, until the windows of the Vatican were opened up, purposefully, to this supposed new springtime. If you'd like to learn more about this series we're doing on the crisis in the church, or go back and revisit our five previous episodes, or if you want to support this project, please visit sspxpodcast.com. Now, we'll turn to our conversation with Father Reuter. We're back with another episode of the Crisis in the Church series, episode six, and our third time in a row with Father Reuter. How did we get so lucky, Father? Well... Probably I didn't prepare well enough to get all synthesized into two, so I thank you for giving me a little more time. <laughs> Absolutely, anytime, anytime. Well, uh, we're going to be talking today about liberal Catholicism, liberal Catholics, um, how that works, how it doesn't work. Um, mm-hmm. But before we dive into that, could you uh, give us just a brief recap on where we left off last time, Father? So we ended with the great Cardinal Below, who, who told us that a liberal Catholic is a contradiction in terms So we went through already what is a liberal, and the Cardinal says to be a liberal Catholic is a contradiction. And he tells us that's really this absolute incoherence to be a a liberal Catholic, because to be a liberal is to liberate yourself from a certain order established by God, and to be a Catholic is essentially an act of submission to an order established by God. And so I think we gave the quote already that the liberalism of a liberal Catholic escapes all classification and has only one sole distinctive and characteristic note, that of perfect and absolute incoherence. Incoherence. So, incoherence. so this is incoherence, meaning there's, there's no way that the two of them can be, can be together. There's, there's no joining of these two principles. Once you grasp the concept liberal and the concept Catholic, you realize the two cannot go together and in, in, in make any sense. So, Okay. So how did we get to this point then where we have these two theories that, are, that people are trying to mesh together or join together? Um, to a great extent, it comes from a lack of understanding of what it means to be Catholic, in fact. You know, the whole series is called The Crisis in the Church, and to a great extent we're here, because what it means to be Catholic, our Catholic identity has been lost. And we've taken on an identity, that of liberalism, which in fact can't be the identity of a true Catholic. So I think to a great extent, liberal Catholicism thrives because Catholicism is not understood. Okay. So I guess we need to define our terms, just like we defined our terms with liberalism. Um, mm-hmm. And this should be a fairly simple one for us to do, but what does it mean yes. then to be a Catholic? Well, we know from the etymology, it means universal, right? Catholic, the word Catholic means universal. Um, The Catholic faith is that we just taught to the the whole world. And we see, in fact, St. Paul to the Ephesians. So the Catholic is one who accepts one faith, one Lord, one baptism. So the Catholic accepts the deposit of the faith 
as taught by the Pope, the magisterium, and submits himself to the sacramental order established by our Lord and taught by the Catholic Church. So there's the intellect is submitted to the magisterium. The will submits itself to the natural law taught by the church, the ecclesiastical law taught by the church. And then we submit ourselves to the sacramental order through which God gives grace. And so basically to, to be a Catholic, you have to believe certain things. There's, there's mm-hmm. certain, there's certain absolute truths that you have to believe. These are the creed. I mean, we know this from our catechism. These are the creed. These are uh, certain dogmas of the faith that we have to believe in basically everything that's contained within the creed. Yeah. So to the extent that we're properly catechized, we must accept everything the church teaches through her universal ordinary magisterium, as well as extraordinary magisterium, because the faith is monolithic. We accept everything on the authority of God. So again, we see running counter to liberalism here. We're accepting things to be true thanks to God's authority. So if we reject one dogma or one doctrine, which is defined, and we knowingly and and reject it, understanding what we're doing, we, we lose the Catholic faith. So if we know, if Catholics know that they have to believe in, in what is what is contained within the creed and, and the dogmas of the church, uh, then why is it that Catholics uh, are prepared to not believe in those things? I mean, how, how, do, how do liberal Catholics basically get to a point where they can reject certain dogmas, certain things uh, that the Catholic Church teaches? It seems very straightforward, but we know uh, that, that there are these people who don't. Yes, I think for the great part today, you know, in 2020, it's, you know, 50 years of fellow catechesis. So we see now for many, many years, whether it be the change in the catechism or just the fact that priests don't preach the truth from the pulpit, we really do see years and years of failed catechesis. So people no longer know what the church teaches. They remain Catholic because they still submit themselves to the Catholic church as the rule of faith, but they don't know what the church teaches, in fact. But as long as they're submitting themselves that the church is the true church, she is the rule of faith, they remain Catholic. And St. Thomas, long before this crisis, you know, addressed this when, when speaking about the faith. And he tells, he tells us that as long as we're ready to accept everything the church teaches, even if we're ignorant of certain doctrines, we still keep the habit of faith. Because the habit of faith comes from the submission of my mind to the church as the rule of faith and that doctrine which a church brings with her. So Catholics today who are, who are liberal, who have liberal ideas, a lot of this may not be their fault. And I say fault in, in air quotes, um, but it, it, it's due in large part because of the lack of, of training and, and catechism that they've had. Now, as Catholics, we still have the duty to explore and to learn. And that's one of the reasons why we're doing this whole series uh, for people to learn more about their faith. Uh, so it's not, they're not entirely blameless, but this isn't due in large part to the fact that there's not good Catholic schools, that there's not, you know, good Catholic sermons and good Catholic training. Um, people are, are really dumbed down. Exactly. And to a great extent, like you said, it's not, it's not even culpable in many cases because they go to church, they hear a sermon, they receive a new catechism. And in conjunction with that, they study modern philosophy, which doesn't accept an absolute truth. So between modern philosophy not accepting absolute truth, between Sunday sermons and a faulty catechism, post-conciliar catechism, they're very much just carried away with the tide of liberalism. 
but they remain Catholic because they accept the church as the rule of faith. So liberal Catholics don't necessarily um, reject that the church holds all the truth. And so it's, it's, not, a, it's not a rejection in, in principle. Uh, it's a rejection exactly. out of ignorance. Exactly. There's no outright rejection if they remain Catholic. It's because there's no outright rejection of the church as a rule of faith. But what happens with a liberal Catholic, and really what kind of defines a liberal Catholic, as we'll see later, is they do accept the thesis or the principle, all these things the church teaches. But then they'll say, but in these modern times, it's not possible to realize them. And here we could probably even distinguish, you know, the classical liberal Catholic and, and some of the modern Catholics who reject, you know, everything and don't believe in any moral code. But for the most part, the liberal Catholic is one who accepts the teaching of the church. Okay, I accept the church as the rule of faith, but in practice, uh, these things can't be lived, can't be realized. So this is this is dangerous, uh, profoundly dangerous to to their faith and to the faith of, of an entire Catholic community if, if people act in this way. Yes, and really for two reasons, because we have to consider human nature and grace. And the Catholic is very dangerous to the Catholic faith because the Catholic faith is a religion of incarnation. Right? The word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. So likewise, the Catholic is meant to incarnate all the doctrines in his life and live them. For example, moral theology is nothing more than theology lived in our daily life. Mm. If we separate our activity from our belief, it really destroys man and it destroys man's faith. And so we see this in regards to the faith, the religion is destroyed, but likewise, our reason is profoundly affected because ideas have consequences. If we're going around professing one thing with our mind and doing another thing with our life, what creates this disjunction, this dissidence in, in our whole being, which is not meant to be there. Right. Our personal life is, is very much, you know, subject to our intellectual life. We can't separate the two. Right. So, so in, in our personal lives, we, we believe that the church is, is the true church, but we're not living that, that faith. Uh, and exactly. then when, and then when we get out into the world and, and we act in terms of, say, our political life or our, you know, work life, uh, that trickles down into that as well. Exactly. We're very devout on Sunday, but are we going to live in a way by which our faith is manifest the world Monday through Saturday? And even worse is we try to take the faith and we try to change it or change its expression in such a way that people who are trained in a way which is with a prejudice against the faith can now accept it. So we right. try to make the faith acceptable to those who don't think the faith is acceptable. So we're trying to change the faith to fit the prejudice of modern man. And therefore we can't proselytize. We can't seek to convert because we'll offend those people who are trained to be anti-Catholic. Right. And, and then moving on into the political life that I kind of started alluding to um, last point you know, the, the reign of Christ the King was something that was so important in the mind of Archbishop Lefebvre. Mm-hmm. And it was important for this for this reason, trying to kind of pull apart, I, I'm, I'm assuming, trying to pull apart that liberalism from Catholics' minds, trying to say, this is, you know, the reign of Christ the King, this is the most important thing you can do as a Catholic. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you are not promoting that and not working towards that, essentially, you're, <laughs> you're a liberal Catholic. Yes, yes, exactly. So the for the for the modern the modern Catholic is they'll accept in principle 
at least at the time of the archbishop, yes, Christ is God, Christ is Redeemer, he has a twofold title to king, but they'll hold that there's just no circumstance in modern society, even in nations which have a majority of Catholics, where this can be realized. And therefore, in principle, we accept it, but in practice, we'll actually work towards pluralism, we'll work towards a laicized state, because in practice, it just can't happen. So why are we going to work towards that? Right. And Cardinal, you know, he below addresses this question and he tells us that this tendency to to work towards pluralism is really an apostasy, a practical apostasy. Hmm. Because if we accept in principle that Christ is God and Christ is king, then that must have concrete ramifications in our life. So it's a really a practical apostasy to not work towards the restoring of all things in Christ to bringing about this, this harmony between the religious and the political sphere. And, and there is a difference, Father, and I guess is the point to ask it. There's a difference between tolerance and approval. And, and we'll get into this in, in a later episode in more detail uh, when we talk about, you know, the separation of church and state and, and um, uh, religious liberty. But uh, tolerance and, and approval is, is very, very different for a Catholic. Yes, and Cardinal Below addresses that as well. He says liberal Catholicism is built on a confusion between tolerance, so to tolerate an evil, and to approve an evil. Uh-huh. So the Catholic, we will tolerate evils we can't change for the sake of a greater good. But when we're tolerating evil, we have in mind it is an evil, and we're only going to tolerate it, literally, so we don't wreak a greater evil and bring about hopefully a greater good. And so we do have to meet people where they are. If somebody doesn't believe in truth at all, we start with what is truth. If they don't believe in reality, we start with what is reality. But the goal has to be to bring people up to accept the supernatural order, not to reduce the supernatural order to the natural order, just so it's not offensive to modern sensitivities. So yeah, there's a huge confusion today between religious toleration tolerating false religions and approving all religions as if they're the same. It's very interesting. Um, if, is there a difference in the way that, that Pope Francis, John Paul II are, are looking at, at the faith and, and morality in this aspect? Yes, we do see at Vatican II, there's this, the shift, this, this change in quotation marks of church teaching, notably in regards to, to the plural, the inherent value of different religions, the ecumenism, collegiality. So we see this this shift in the doctrine. Again, we say that in quotation marks, but at least as presented by the popes. But we do see that John Paul II tried to keep the morality. Right, he was against mm-hmm. women priests. He was against um, contraception and same gender marriage and all those things. But we see with Pope Francis, he actually starts to take the moral code and change it to conform itself to the doctrine, which has already been shifting for 50 years. Mm-hmm. So in a certain sense, Pope Francis is a little bit more consistent because rather than living in this world of changing doctrine, but not changing morality, he's actually now changing morality to fit the change doctrine. So very dangerous, but in a certain sense, more logical. Right. But we see in the concept certain, of liberalism. Right. In a certain sense, it's almost more consistent. Uh, mm-hmm. And I hate to use that word because that that implies that it's good, but uh, mm-hmm. it's it's not. Um, we've looked at so we've looked at um, defining a Catholic in terms of you know how how liberalism can affect a Catholic. Um, how do we talk about 
liberalism in the sense of, of how, how, I guess, how did it get into the church? How do we first see that seeping of, of this liberalism into the church? We've, we've been talking about liberalism itself, itself mm-hmm. you know, its history, but from at what point in history did it start to get into the church? Get inside the church, yes. Yeah. So, you know, the ideas, the current of ideas in society were affecting churchmen. That's one thing. And ever since, you know, liberalism took a hold in the Enlightenment, we now have this exaggerated notion of liberty as the greatest good. So that's certainly going to affect the churchmen on, on a personal level as they're, they're influenced by the society in which they live, as we all are. But likewise, the church started losing her influence in society. And churchmen were trying to regain this influence in society, regain a certain peace, certain standing in society. And they sought, they sought to do it not by bringing back the reign of Christ the King, but adapting the teaching of the church to the modern notion of liberty. So rather than changing modern man's notion of liberty, they're going to change the church's notion of her rights, privileges, and prerogatives so as not to offend modern man. You, you mentioned that the church is losing influence. At, at what point are we talking about? What, what years or what, what events took place that caused the church to lose influence? It really goes back to the, you know, the Protestant Reformation again. We noted that in the first podcast. But the Protestant Reformation, we noted, had this huge spiritual consequence, this doctrinal, this heresy. But likewise, it had real political consequences, which, which have to be highlighted. So we have the Protestant Reformation. We have the Thirty Year War, which, which followed from 1618 to 1648. And all Christendom is really divided in this, in this horrible war and all the casualties, and they seek peace, and it took a long time. They have the Peace of Westphalia, which which was a few years itself in, in negotiating, and this Peace of Westphalia did stop the bloodshed, at least in the short term. It didn't last all that long. It stopped the bloodshed, but it really created a modern state, or the modern notion of a nation state, and this modern notion of a nation state was whatever religion the prince holds, that will be the religion of the state. Hmm. So they break up the notion of the Holy Roman Empire, by which there is an, an emperor, which has influence over all the other states, and they're united with a certain spiritual bond. They all profess the Catholic Church is the true church. So there is a certain real brotherhood between all these different states, thanks to the supernatural, therefore supranational bond which is the Catholic Church, which has political influence on all the different subservient states. With the Peace of Westphalia, they're all broken up to nation states. They seek a balance of power without any influence of Holy Roman Emperor or influence of the Pope. So this is a real blow on Christendom because the Pope loses his place as really an ambassador to bring peace to all nations as the father, spiritual father of all nations. And now the church, in fact, whether it be the Catholic Church, which is now more or less used to keep morality and help keep public peace, but not really influence politics. Then you have the Protestant churches, which are really at the service of the state to to help the ends of the state. So Mm -hmm. the Peace of Westphalia, in fact, was a big blow to the influence of the Catholic Church in society. And so then we have this power vacuum where people are looking for some sort of international law court or guidelines or something. And then that, that kind of leads into where we are today. First, the league of nations, and then uh, with the United nations today. Exactly. Uh, The balance of powers as taught by Westphalia is great until the balance is upset by one nation. Right. And then we 
World War One, and we have, but even before that, there were there were other wars which 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 broke up this balance of powers. But exactly that is, we really see the stages set for a a supranational naturalistic society to try to keep all nations in a certain balance, rather than the church with her diplomatic corps and her teaching all nations the principles of the faith, keeping a certain harmony as much as, as possible in a fallen world in society. That's interesting. So, so we have this event, we have this, you know, this 30 years war, the Treaty of Westphalia. Um, what's next? What is the next kind of stepping stone or marker that we can see in the church's loss of, of authority and, and, or I guess the church's um, liberalism's influence in the church? Well, we mentioned in the first podcast that for Freemasons, you know, the, the, the philosophy of Freemasonry is liberalism. So I don't think we can pass by the notion, the, the moment in history, 1717, when Freemasonry was officially established by Protestants. And they're built on naturalism, therefore rationalism, therefore liberalism. And they have huge influence in political society. And they also made it clear they wanted to infiltrate religious society. So we see that the Christian principles, which are meant to reign in the church, are going to be eroded in really by two avenues, just by the, the Freemasonic influence in society at large, but also by men who enter the church with the purpose of bringing these ideas which are foreign to the church into the church with the expressed desire to to gain influence in the hierarchy, which of course is to attack the rights of the church and Christ the King. And just as a side note on, on this, Father, you know, a lot of people are, are going to be surprised that free, Freemasonry still exists and is still dangerous um, when uh, most people think of Freemasons. They think of a, a club of of men who get together and you know help out kids' hospitals and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but Freemasonry definitely is still a a a group or a philosophy that is dangerous uh, in the sense that it is overthrow, trying to overthrow the church, trying to influence the church. Yes, it's hidden but alive and well. And you know the greatest trick of the devil is to make you think he doesn't exist. Right. So if we don't, if today it's I think very similar is. People like to think Freemasonry no longer has an influence, but the ideas, naturalism, rationalism, liberalism, and secret societies promoting them, even in the church, is certainly very real. And I know the podcast has interviewed John Salza, who's really an expert on the question, to show that it's really alive and well in the church and in society. Absolutely. Uh, moving from Freemasonry, the next, I guess the next step would be the, the French Revolution, right? Yes. We see how they got their ideas into the French Revolution. And the French Revolution was really a throwing off of Christendom. Mm-hmm. The king who represented this union of church and state, he was a Catholic monarch, subject to the Pope. And, you know, of course, there were flaws, there were defects, there were humans. But at least there was this public recognition of the Catholic religion as the true religion, which then, of course, permeates all of society. If the king is Catholic, if his court is Catholic, many people will be Catholic through this influence. And through these liberal ideas, they had to execute guillotine, the king, which is really a symbol of, of this union of church and state is no longer welcome. And we want absolute license, you know, liberty without constraint, which one of the chief models is, is liberty, liberty from constraint. And so the French Revolution was even more so than Westphalia because of its violence was a real blow to the influence of the, of the Catholic Church on civil society. And there was a bit of pushback after the French Revolution. There was a, there were some states who were trying to restore some peace. They were trying to restore some of what was lost. Uh, did that 
kind of push back liberalism from infiltrating the church more, or did it not do much? I would say it more, it more codified it insofar uh, as we have Napoleon who brought certain order, but it was a tyrannical order, which, you know, wreaked havoc in Europe. The European states realized that we're on a, we're on a dead end path here, complete chaos. They did not want the bloodshed of the revolution. They did not want the influence of Napoleon. So the Congress of Vienna was called by the different nation states of the time to broker a certain peace. Yeah, what's interesting, and it goes back to that first podcast on you know capital C or small C conservative, mm-hmm. but they did want to come back to a certain order. They even wanted to bring back certain legitimate leaders, rulers, and they wanted to to get rid of all the extremes of the French Revolution. But they didn't want to come back to the order of union of church and straight state and Christ the King. It was more of just this middle ground. We'll try to bring some legitimacy back. We'll again go back to that Westphalian notion of a balance of powers, but the church no longer has this active role in establishing this balance of powers by her maternal influence over all countries. It still is very much Protestant states and Catholic states. And the church, again, the Catholic church is used to support public morality, but it's not used to really influence political decisions. So the Congress of Vienna brought a certain order but it's not the order of Christ. It's not reestablishing the order which was previous to the French Revolution. It was still built very much in the modern notions of liberty. Right. So it was very much a superficial using the church for, for its own needs instead of trying to restore what, what was there. Yes. Hmm. Um, speaking, of, speaking of trying to restore the, the role of the church in the state, um, we talked about this a little bit last time in 1927 when uh, Cardinal Billot resigned and when uh, Father Lafloc resigned. Um, this was basically what Action Francaise was trying to do. And this was, yes. this was condemned by Pius XI, as you mentioned, towards the end of uh, last episode. Mm-hmm. Yes, not because of their Catholic activity, but because of different aspects of the political movement. So he wasn't condemning okay. the notion of bringing back Christ the King by any means. But there were many different elements to Action Francaise, which he was not so comfortable with. But it, that was really the last big movement to undo the French Revolution. And I would say when that failed, some even say the reason Jacques Maritain went so far left in his political philosophy was when Action Francaise was condemned. He thought, well, the old order is certainly over. We're not going back to this Christian union of church and state. What is the new Christianity that we have to form? And of course, personalism and great friend of Paul VI. And so we do see that as the church kept losing influence and losing battles, people started thinking, okay, what is the, what is the way forward? What is the new normal? How do we have peace in society? How does the church fit into the modern world? Rather than how do we take the world and uplift it by the principles the church teaches? I think that's the key. The key problem is we're trying to make the church fit into the modern world then the church lift up the modern world. Christ said, I come to reconcile things to myself. Christ didn't come to reconcile himself to the world. And that's really the spirit of the liberal Catholic is that reconciling the church and the doctrines of the church to the modern world. In a certain sense, and maybe this is a bit of a loaded question, but couldn't you almost say that that the Vatican, Vatican City being its own individual country, and I know the Pope's had papal states before, but it almost kind of secularizes the church instead of, instead of 
making it higher than the other nations, or maybe that's not a fair comparison at all. But I, I'm trying to understand, you know, people almost see the church as this, as this uh, equal to authority in the world and not as something that's on a different plane. Yeah, it's a big mystery between the, the human and divine element. You know, the reason for the papal states, which were so important, was to keep the church exempt from influence of, of foreign powers. Uh, so you can't be the mother of all nations if she's subject to one nation or protected by one nation. Sure. So having a large papal state and an, and an army to protect it allowed her to be independent and therefore to have an influence on all the nations of the world. So okay. that's really one of the great reasons why we do need a certain autonomy, which is now very small. It's, it is the Vatican right. and St. Lateran and St. Mary Major. But, um, but right. yeah, no, the church does need her own territory, her own independence, if she's going to have equal influence in the world. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, so uh, just to kind of riff off what you were saying before, uh, before going down that little rabbit hole, that this trying to make the church fit into the state, making the, the state and, and the church equals, um, this kind of devalues or invalidates uh, all of the works of the martyrs and the saints who have come before. Um, people exactly. who would say, I'm going to be put to death instead of, um, instead of submitting to what the state wants, now we're trying to make it all equal and it just doesn't work. Exactly. For the example, the Pantheon, the Romans would have, would have allowed Christ to be in the Pantheon an equal level with everybody else. But the Christians prefer to die than to put Jesus Christ on the same level as the pagan gods. And this notion of separation of church and state, a free church within a free state, is basically to say that the church for which Christ died, the Ark of Salvation, the only way to get to heaven, is equally as valuable as any Protestant or any non-Catholic group. And it also puts the church under the power of the state, and the church becomes an, almost an instrument of the state and has, has no independence of her own. That's interesting. Um, so liberal Catholicism, uh, we were talking about the, the French Revolution, we're talking about Freemasonry, so it was really, what, the early 1800s or so when when it started to kind of, kind of gain some traction, people are saying, hey, this isn't working, let's try to bring liberalism into the church. And, and was it kind of a concerted effort by some individuals? Yeah, there was a big name, which is really, we see as the father of liberal Catholicism as such. She was a priest, as Luther was a priest. So we see that priests can do much good and much evil as well. Um, Felicité de Lamine, he was a French priest ordained in 1817. He founded a newspaper, which had a lot of influence at the time. And he was really advocating for the democratic government. So this new post-revolutionary world. He was advocating for the separation of church and state, for a free church in a free state, and freedom of conscience. We're not going to impose on the conscience of people, not force, of course, we don't force conversions, but not even try to proselytize as we used to. And freedom of press, which we know, as we see today, manifestly, freedom of press is an illusion. There's there's no such thing. But he was pushing even for this, this freedom of press and it's because he bought into that notion that humanity is in this constant progress, that this new notion of liberty is the new normal we have to accept and we have to embrace, and that all religions have equal rights, and the church doesn't have any special privileges or prerogatives from her divine rights, but she belongs to the same common rights as every other religion. And he had this illusion that if we do that, the church will do well. Put wow. truth and falsehood on the same level, and the church will do well. Which, of course, we know doesn't work. Right. 
his his ideas sound like they come straight out of Vatican II, but he was what in the 18, 1830s, 1840s? Exactly. Yeah, Vatican II in, in a real way baptized his teaching, and he was condemned by Gregory XVI in Morari Vos, which is an indictment of the council, in fact. If we can say that Vatican II baptized Felicite de Lamine and Gregory the Sixteenth condemned the same priest, it's really an indictment of the council must have a real problem. And he condemned him in the great encyclical Mirari Vos. And rather than submitting his mind to the church and the magisterium, he rejected and formally broke with the Catholic church. Mm. And now these ideas are rampant in the church, yeah. even though he had a break from the church in the 1830s because of his ideas. So just over 130 some odd years later, mm-hmm. um, we see these same ideas coming into the church through, through Vatican II. Um, how did this kind of play out? And, and again, we'll get into more, much more detail on, on Vatican II and a lot of these ideas, but um, in a more broad sense, how did, how did these ideas really formally enter the church? Well, Vatican II was the moment where they were, again, they were these baptized by the church. The Vatican II saw itself as this new springtime. It really saw itself as the counter syllabus. So the papacy of Pius IX was really setting up a wall to hold out the liberal influence. And Vatican II's was to open the windows and let all the influence in. And Cardinal Ratzinger, who was a young expert of the council at the time, then became Pope. He said in the Principles of Catholic Theology that the text of Gaudium et Spes plays the role of a counter syllabus in the measure in which it, pre- it represents a tentative or an official reconciliation of the church with the world of the French Revolution. And wow. so, so the, the syllabus was meant to hold back liberalism. And Cardinal Ratzinger then, he saw the Vatican II as the counter syllabus, letting in liberalism. And the archbishop, you know, he had this discussion with the then cardinal. And for him, that's what distinguished his work and the work of Cardinal Ratzinger and then Pope Benedict was the church was working for to de-Christianize society, to un, to unthrone our Lord Jesus Christ, to uncrown our Lord Jesus Christ. And the archbishop was working, following the magisterium, to keep our Lord Jesus Christ king, king of civil society and king of our souls. I, I mean, I, I, I said, wow, because it, I, I didn't realize that it was that blatant that Cardinal Ratzinger, later uh, Pope Benedict, would say, as again, as blatantly as that, you know, this is, we are officially reconciling the church with the liberal world, with these liberal ideas of the French Revolution. I, I didn't realize they were that, uh, you know, open. clear about it. Yeah, open about it. That just shows how things progress. First, it's we believe the thesis, but it just can't be realized. We spend a century not realizing it. And then the praxis, praxis is it can't be realized. So now we change the teaching to conform to the praxis. And so we have to be careful with this ourselves because we live in a post-Christian world. And it happens that at first we're shocked by evil, and then it no longer shocks us. Then we tolerate it, and then we embrace it. Right. So we'll have to be aware that we could very much be influenced and, and go down the same tr- tr- path that many liberals have gone down, by which we no longer really profess Christ's kingship in, in our life. If you, could, if you could remind liberal Catholics of, of one thing— uh, Besides giving them purely, or maybe just infusing, you know, all the catechism into their minds, uh, but if you could remind a, a liberal Catholic of one thing, what 
what would you say? What would be the biggest antidote towards this kind of continuous uh, pull of the church away from from its traditions? I would say a, a negative and a positive. One is I think that we forget that we're really at war with the world. There's actually a, a vicious battle by the enemies of Christ to eradicate Christianity from society, to remove from the church all influence over society, and to replace the church by some naturalistic organization like the UN, which is going to somehow create some balance of powers, but without without Christianity, without Christ. So there really is a war in society today. That's something we forget. Mm-hmm. There is a war. The remnants of the Christian world are at stake. That's one aspect. The other, and we can give a quote from Dom Garanger, So there's a special grace attached to the full and entire profession of the faith, not only for those who profess it, but for those who hear it. So as Catholics, we have to find a charitable way to profess the faith in its fullness in our daily life, in our political life, knowing that will give us grace to be faithful and that will give grace to others to convert. I think that's key today. There's a war against Christianity, a war against our Lord, war against Christian society. There's a special grace if we profess the faith in its entirety. If we do that, we'll be faithful to the church and faithful to the Archbishop's mission to restore all things in Christ. Well, that's great advice, and uh, hopefully more people will hear it and, and act on it. Thank you, Father. I appreciate it. and. Uh, thank you for now this this third episode on on liberalism, and I think we'll let you take a break for <laughs> for a few weeks. And uh, I'd, I'd love to have you back for um, for another uh, episode or two down the road. I think we have a few scheduled with you later on, but um, yes, we'll, we'll give you some time. Great, thank you, Andrew. <laughs> All right, thank you, Father. All right, bye bye. Thank you for listening to and watching episode six of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. Next Thursday, we'll be welcoming Father Jonathan Loop to discuss Americanism. This is a unique error. It isn't unpatriotic, but it is an error that emanated from Protestant American exceptionalism. If you have a question on the topic of the crisis, please feel free to ask it at sspxpodcast.com slash crisis, and we'll do our best to have it answered during the appropriate episode. And we could definitely use your support. First, please share this episode with someone who you think might enjoy it. And if they don't know what a podcast is, please show them so that they can take advantage of all our episodes. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of $5, 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this Crisis in the Church project. Until next week, thank you for listening, and God bless you.